0: So, uh, today we have uh, my friend James Michael Smith who's going to be here with us. Uh, he's going to tell you a lot about what he does, but from a personal standpoint, he's been a, a big help to me. Uh, you'll hear in my talk tomorrow a little bit, but one of the reasons I remain on social media is from JM. Uh, he is able to walk the line of a lot of devices, big, heavy issues in such a wonderful way that it just uh, it obviously inspires me and keeps He has a, a Disciple Dojo, which is a ministry of online resources. Uh, some of the stuff he's developed, he teaches to Samaritans first staff. Uh, so he awesome. goes on and on and on, but I don't want to cut any more of his time. So, with further, without further ado, James Michael. And so, yeah, I'm, I asked her if I could record this. This is the first time I've given this talk, and so I wanted to uh, yeah. make it available for people on the podcast as well. I, I do a weekly Bible teaching podcast every Tuesday, if you're in Charlotte, it's at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and it's free. Ruth's Chris provides the lunch, and yes, it is steak, and people, anybody in the community can come, business people, retired people, college students, anybody, and we do a 30-minute teaching through the Bible. We started six years ago in Genesis. Next week, I'll teach Joshua 3. We just go chapter by chapter, and so I am out of the loop here. I have, I'm not a veterinarian. I have nothing to do with the field of veterinary medicine. I have a dog who I love who great veterinarians care for. Um, But when when, when Curtis asked me to come talk, uh, I I have a passion for teaching the Bible, but I do have a passion for animals, and particularly creation care. This is something where Christians have largely dropped the ball since around the second Great Awakening or so. uh, Somehow the gospel became all about getting people saved and going to heaven. That has as much to do with the gospel as putting on your shoes does with running a marathon. It is just the... The the pray Jesus into your heart, get your sins forgiven, so when you die, you go to heaven. That's the first tiny step towards what is the gospel, which is a much fuller or whole creation account. And especially as an Old Testament teacher, that's something that's dear to my heart because it's something the church has largely lost. And so when you talk about things like, uh, you know, serving the Lord and, and giving your testimony, you could not ever cover the four spiritual laws and still preach the gospel, Because the two are not the same. And so I want to push back hard against that idea, especially rampant in college ministries, because it's what I grew up with. And it is so not what Scripture gives us. And in particular, so the Gospel is bigger than just people. It's all of creation. This is something that gets lost as well in evangelistic preaching. And so I want you to see this, because you're going to be going out, and you're going to actually be, some of you already are, ministering to people. And it may take the form of working on an animal, helping them with some farm stuff, whatever area you're in. That is ministry. That is gospel if you're doing it with a gospel mindset. And so that's what we're going to look at today is you're going to get a little quick seminary course. And we're going to look at the biblical theology of Christian stewardship, animal and end times. Now what does animals and end times have to do with anything? Well, according to the Bible, we are living in the end times and it has nothing to do with anything going on in the middle. It has nothing to do with credit card chips in your hand or your forehead. It has nothing to do with any planes falling out of the sky, or Kirk Cameron or Nicolas Cage, running around to save the world, any of the left behind nonsense. Nothing to do with the fact that we're living in the end times. The end times began when Jesus ascended. At Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, they quoted Joel. This is what would happen in the end times, the latter days. So when people ask me, we live in the end times? Yes, and we have been since Pentecost. That's the age that we find ourselves in now. So what I want to do is give you a look at what does the Bible tell us about life, not just in the pre-Messianic age, but in this Messianic age that we're in, which is Jesus and Messiah, and the age to come, which is where everything's, everything is headed. So hopefully this clicker works. It's totally not right now, and I need it to work. There we go. All right. Um, if I do this, just that's the sign for clicking to the next slide. So I want us to start with this passage. This is where we're going to start from. This little cryptic passage in Mark's gospel. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's going out. Uh, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out, out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven: You are my son with whom I love whom I love, with whom I am with you I am well pleased. At once, so this is the baptism of Jesus, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. Now here's a throwaway line that none of the other Gospels have. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended. That He was with the wild animals. Just a weird little prickly, like petting a donkey or something, what's going on? He's just out in the wilderness. There's significance in this. There's Messianic significance in this that we're going to see. But we have to backtrack first. And we have to look at the (laughs) concept of dominion, sin, and wild animals in the Hebrew Bible. Now, if you don't know the creation story, uh, basically you have God taking six days, however you want to interpret that, and creating the, the creation. And the first three days, this is a pattern that a lot of people miss, but it's been noticed since the ancient times. The first three days, God creates the domains. And then on those next three days, he creates the corresponding rulers of each domain. So he creates the light and the dark. And then he creates on day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. To, and the text says, let them rule over the day and the night. So then day two he creates the sky and the waters, and then day five he creates the things that swim in the water and fly in the sky. And then on the day three he creates the land and the vegetation, and then on day six he creates the things that live on the land and eat the vegetation. That's how the creation is structured. Day seven underlines it all with the rest. This is an easy to remember pattern that's structured after ancient Near East accounts of similar long-term events that were given in a rhetorical format of, of a seven-day period and it was presenting God as an ancient craftsman, as a Hebrew worker, going about, laboring, building, resting, there's evening, there's morning day one, getting up, doing something else, there's evening, there's morning day two. So God is very earthy and he's very artisanal in his um, in His re- relationship to creation. Creation is his temple, his, his canvas, his masterpiece. And so there's a whole, uh, I, on my website, if you go to there we go. <laughs> if you go to slash uh, Bible science. There's a whole five-session seminar I teach on, on the creation account and the science, and what do we do with that? You're younger creationists, older creationists, is the istic evolution? Blah blah blah. We don't have time to get into all that. The point of this, but we'll go there for sure. It's free. Everything on discipledojo is free. We're a nonprofit. If you're looking for a nonprofit to support, so we can put more free stuff online, um, do that as well. But the point is, in this creation account, so. When God's creating on these last two days of this creation account, when He's making the what we would call the animals, the higher animals and people. And verse 20 of Genesis 1 God says, God said, Let the water team with living creatures. Living creatures. Now, if you read Hebrew, anybody here speak Hebrew or read Hebrew? Or, okay, then you can just trust me. But i put it in English beside so you can at least pronounce it. Is he said, Let the water team with nepheshaiah? And that's C-H, like (laughs) Chanukah, that that, would make Hebrew fun, to be able to So, the Nefesh Chaya, living creatures, well, that word Nefesh, he goes on to say, let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky, God said, let the land. Now, the next day, this is day six, God said, let the land produce. Notice that he didn't say, I will make. He says, let the land produce, the concept of creation from within. to play the your view of evolution, life developing on earth. Whatever that view is, I don't care right now, Um, but he says, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, this word is behemoth, that's where we get behemoth from, it means big cattle, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to their kind, and it was so. So the three kinds are basically mammals, big animals, there's things that scurry on the ground, and then there's things out in the wild that eat the things that scurry on the ground. And those are just these three broad concepts that the Hebrew mind worked with. But this, this concept, nefesh kaya, wild animals, uh, in the, when the Greek translation of the Old Testament was made, they translated it as tsukom zoson, living soul. The word nefesh is the word soul. Whenever you see, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, nashi, my soul, that's the word nefesh. So somewhere along the way, somebody got the idea that animals don't have souls. That person was not Jewish. They were not a Hebrew reader. Because the Bible is very clear from the first beginning, animals do have souls. They are described as living souls. Nefesh chayyah I don't know where that concept came from, but please, get it out of your mind. The work you do, you are working on beings with souls. Now, do they have rationality and all the things? Of, you? of course not. But do they have souls? Anybody that's worked with a therapy dog knows the soulish qualities of an animal. Anybody that has a horse that's been their companion that they've ridden for years, you know the soulless quality of an animal. So it's total folk theology nonsense to say animals don't have souls. I don't know where we picked it up, but let's put it to rest once and for all, especially for the veterinarians. <coughs> so, the word for soul is the word that's used to describe animals in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, next slide. <coughs> now, this is how things... There we go. So, everything goes terrible after the creation. Sin, rebellion, death, there's just this downward spiral of violence all the way to Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, it's so bad that God says, okay, Mulligan, I'm just going to do a do-over. Everything is horrible. And the prince says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for, and this is NIV. Now I'm preaching, I teach from the NIV, but I correct the NIV a lot because sometimes they miss it. And here's one where they missed it. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. The text does not say all the people. The text says kol bashar, all flesh. And bashar, flesh, is the word used for animals when you make sacrifices, meat. It's the word for flesh. It's used to people and of animals. It means living things. And so, whatever this is saying, whatever that corruption was, the world was characterized by violence between living things. Mostly people, I mean, that's who bear the brunt of the judgment, but the animals didn't get off free either. So, corruption, human corruption, human sin, affected all the way down to the created world. The sin of humanity, as God's standard image bearers, stewards of creation, the sin of humanity infects and corrupts and pollutes even the created world realm that doesn't actually commit the sins, but that feels the effects of sin reverberating through the cosmos. And that's what we had in Genesis 6. And so God said uh, to Noah, I'm going to put it into all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And so God then sends the judgment of the flood. After the flood, next slide, After the flood, when God brings Noah out and he gives him the recreation mandate, he repeats the mandate to Adam and Eve, to fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply. He repeats it, but he notices that the problem has not been dealt with. Sin still exists. We're going to see that in the very next chapter if you read your Bible. We won't look at it today, but Noah, first thing he does, builds a plant of vineyard, gets drunk, his son comes in, does some shenanigans with him, and sin is still there. It's still in the human condition. Well, God gives Noah this mandate, and he says, God bless Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat with the blood, that has the lifeblood still in it, Blood, and for your life blood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God, God has made mankind. As for you, be fruitful, increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it. So now in, in this creation that's been wiped of the worst effects of the disease, so the gangrene limb has been severed, but there's still some residual infection deeper that didn't get uh, done away with and that's going to, but that'll have to wait for the New Testament. In the meantime, God's telling you, this is how you're going to live uh, as my people. He starts with Noah. And there's this enmity, there's this hostility between humanity and the wild animals. Now we live in an age where we have dominion, okay? Unless you're on a glacier up in the North Shore of Alaska, and there's polar bear around, and you got nothing, uh, you're at the top of the food chain. Now, that situation you're not, you're at the bottom. But in most situations, we're at the top of the food chain. We have the ability to destroy this creation. Wild animals do not pose a threat to us anymore. However, back then, they absolutely did pose a threat. This is thousands of years ago, however, you want to date the Noah story. This is before humanity had basically achieved mastery, or so we think, over the animal kingdom. So things like wolves, bears, lions, hyenas—these were threats. You didn't go camp—you didn't go out in the desert and just camp at night without some kind of protection or taking into account or somebody keeping watch or a fire or something. Wow, animals were scary. I mean, they still are. I just probably got some stories that you can tell in Africa. the animals are still scary, even though they're endangered and we're having to protect them. There's still a fear. And that's how it was in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the biblical view of creation, the biblical view towards animals, was care for the domestic ones and fear, like an awe-inspiring fear of the wild ones. This was the ancient biblical Hebrew view of creation, of the animals. And God took it seriously. Care for the animals. Exodus, next slide, Exodus. Exodus. Uh, God gives the command on the Sabbath, and a lot of people just blank over this one too. But God says, "Remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant, female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath." Even the animals were to rest on the Sabbath. Why? Because God cares about animals. He cares about animals for their own sake, not just for the sake of what they can do for people. Deuteronomy 25, 4, Paul quotes this twice in the New Testament: do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. If you've ever seen oxen tread grain, this is how it works. The oxen are brought into a pit. look at that, here we go. They're brought into this pit, a threshing fork, all the stalks of wheat, the sheaves, are brought in and thrown down. And the oxen are strapped to a yoke, to a pole in the center, and they walk around in a circle, hour after hour. Crunch, 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 crunch separating the wheat from the chaff. And when they're done, they're let out, somebody comes in with a windowing fork, and they start throwing the stuff up in the air. And either with people waving blankets or the wind blowing or something, the chaff gets blown away. And the wheat, the kernels, fall to the ground. So after hours and hours of that, You now have what was a pile of that. You have a pile of kernels of grain that you can then take, grind at a hand mill, and that's how you make your flour. So this is the process by which Israel got their bread. And that was their staple food. Now why would you muzzle your ox while it's treading the grain? You don't want it eating your profits. This is hard work. Every mouthful that that ox takes is a mouthful out of your pockets. And this is not, this is labor intensive. So a smart farmer in the ancient by ancient standards would muzzle their ox. But it's unbelievably cool. Because the animal is not only doing your work, but it can't even eat of what it's doing. And it's frustrating. And it's you know, So even in Torah, God builds this into how Israel is going to treat their animals. <coughs> Jonah, the whole book of Jonah, ends, everybody thinks Jonah's the good guy. Jonah's not the good guy. He's the bad guy. It's the only book of the Bible named after the bad guy. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh, but because he was scared that the Ninevites would be mean to him. No, he flat out says at the end of Jonah why he doesn't want to go preach to Nineveh. Because he knew God is merciful, and he knew the Ninevites might repent, and if they repented, God would save them. He wanted them to burn. He was the original street preacher. He wanted to see the, the fire of God fall down and burn the sinners. And at the very end of the book, the last line of the book of Jonah, he goes and has a little pity party out, pouting outside because he didn't get to see him fry. And God comes to him. It's like, Jonah, why are you mad? And he gives this parable or this, this event with a worm and a plant. Jonah has as much to do with a whale as it does with a worm. They're just two animals that God uses in the story to teach Jonah an object lesson. But this, there's this thing with a plant and worm. The plant dies and Jonah gets mad and he pouts. He's just a terrible person all around in the book. And at the end, the book ends with God saying, Jonah, you're mad about this plant? You didn't do anything. It just grew up overnight, and now it's dead, and now you're mad, and mad enough to die. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right from their left, and also many animals, Bahama, livestock? Even in saying, I'm not going to judge Nineveh, God takes account of the animals that are God cares about animals. And in the last Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 10. Now the NIV says, the righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. And what that means is like righteous people, they're so righteous that they even care for their animals. But the wicked people, uh, the kindest act of the wicked, the wicked person is cruelty. Like they're not even capable of being anything but cruel. That's how Proverbs work. It's like two lines and one tells the opposite. But the actual Hebrew of this, again, Literally, Hebrew reads right and left. Literally, it says he's knowing a righteous man, the soul of his bohema, his livestock. The righteous man is knowing the soul of, the life of, his livestock, but the mercies of the wicked men are cruel. And so Richard Baucom, New Testament or biblical theologian, <coughs> he wrote this book. I highly recommend it to all who's called the Bible and Ecology. It, he's evangelical, it's not crazy tree hugging. Vegan, everything. No, he's just a solid biblical evangelical scholar who writes on the biblical view of ecology and what God cares about creation. And and in talking about this verse, Bachman says, we might say, and paraphrases, the righteous person is attentive to the feelings of their animal. The statement refers to rather more than goodwill towards the animal. It portrays the farmer who has gotten to know the animal well enough to tell when it's needing to rest or gasping for a drink and feels for the animals one might for a human friend in such a case. Traditional farmers, unlike those who now practice intensive farming, could do this, as could people like Balaam, who rode the same donkey for years. Such knowledge is available only through compassion. And that's, that's the biblical view of animals, is with compassion. Yes, they're used for wool. Yes, they're used for milk. Yes, they're used for meat, for sacrifices. Yes, Jesus cooked and ate fish and a lamb. And so it's you don't have to go full on crazy vegan. And if anybody's vegan, when I say I mean crazy, you know what I mean. I don't you just <laughs> mean your vegan. I mean crazy vegan. Um, <laughs> and you don't have to go that far to know that God, even the animals He's given us that should be utilized by us, that utilization is to come with care and compassion, even in the slaughtering of animals for food. Care and compassion, and that's something. In our modern world, we've kind of gotten away from that. And some of you may be involved in industrial agriculture or factory farming or whatever. The Bible is going to push back on a lot of the things that you may be surrounded by because it does not line up with what God's desire is for his creation, which is care and compassion, human and animal, even while you're eating them, even while we were eating them, care and compassion. So Psalm 104 then Psalm 104 is this praise, this, this hymn to creation. And it somewhat follows the structure of those six creation days, lifting up the different elements of each day, and, and the order is not quite the same, but everybody's recognized that this is a, a worship song reflecting on God's creation. And so look throughout this psalm at, at what God says about the animals and, and the attitude that's displayed there. It says, Praise the Lord, my soul. Uh, Lord, my God, you are very great, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his charity, rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds as messengers, flames of fire as servants. He set the earth on its foundation, it can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains, they went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross, never again will they cover the earth. This is all the creation of the land and the waters and the separation that Genesis talks about. (laughs) He makes springs pour water into the ravines It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle, and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers, the high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are the refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. Even predation is seen as God. Even, even baby gazelle being given to Mama Cheetah, as we saw this morning, is God providing food for his creation. The sun rises and they steal away. Turn and lie down in their dens, and people go out into their work, to their labor until evening. How many are your works, O Lord, in wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro in the Leviathan, which was this like mythical big sea monster thing in the minds of the ancient Near East, and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, and this is the word spirit, ruach, their breath. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. But when you send your breath, your spirit, ruach, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. So this was Israel, one of their main hymns to creation. And you see, again, the biblical attitudes towards animals that slide. Is care for domestic ones, and fear or awe of the wild ones. But, one day, the Messiah will come and restore shalom, which is wholeness or peace, throughout the creation, including the wild animals. And this is where we start to bring it around to what Jesus is doing out in the desert. See, all along, Israel lived with this uncertainty of this, this, they're in awe of the animals. And Job, God shows up and starts talking all about animals and creation, and the Psalms and the Proverbs are filled with, look to the animals, look to creation, and you can tell about God. And there was this sense of awe and uncertainty and fear uh, when it came to wild animals. Because wild animals were where people weren't. Where people were, they could huddle together, they could build walls, they could have fire, they could hunt, they could kind of keep the wild animals at bay. But the wild animals were always seen as a constant threat. And so whenever Israel would be destroyed by Babylon or Syria or a place would be leveled, it would be described as now it becomes a haunt for the wild animals, a place of the jackals, a place of, you know, the wild animals encroach back in and take over when people have been destroyed. <coughs> and so in the proper, I mean in the prophets, you see this, these visions of the prophets looking forward to the coming of this Messiah, whoever he is, whatever he's going to be. And his coming has certain characteristics that will accompany it. And one of those things has to do with a lot of animals. Look at Ezekiel. Next slide. Ezekiel 34. This is Ezekiel's kind of his vision. His uh, Balkan calls it his ectopia. Like like an ecological utopia where there's harmony between humanity and creation. And Ezekiel has one. Isaiah has one. A couple of the other prophets. (coughs) But Ezekiel 34 this is a prophecy in this chapter, reading about the coming of the Messiah, the one who will shepherd God's people. Because God says, You, leaders of Jerusalem, have been terrible shepherds. You have not cared for my sheep.
1: One day I'm going to
0: shepherd my sheep, and my shepherd, David, will lead them. And, and, and so it's this prediction of Messiah who will be a good shepherd as opposed to a bad and abusive shepherd. And he says, I will save, verse 22, I will save my flock. They will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. That's where Jesus got the sheep and the goats. and that Jesus never made up a lot of stuff. Almost everything he said came from the scriptures that he was the embodiment of. Uh, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace, shalom, a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. Slide. I will make them and the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send out showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit. The ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. I'll provide for them a land renowned for its crops and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them and they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. So God is part of the Messianic mission will be to restore that sense of shalom, that sense of of things being out of control that's been going on since the flood and even before. And then part of the Messiah's mission will be to come usher in that age where the creation account gets back on track after being derailed by sin. This is is the image in, in Ezekiel's vision. Isaiah chapter 11 has the same thing. In uh, speaking of the coming Messiah, Isaiah, this is hundreds of this is, these are about 100 years or so between Ezekiel and Isaiah, long before Jesus, like over 500 years before Jesus. Isaiah says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and light, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them." Those are are sets of predator prey relationships in each of those. Verse seven: The cow will feed with the bear; the young will lie down. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy. all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And then later, at the end of Isaiah, chapter sixty-five, he comes back to this theme and says. This is again talking about this new creation where everything's it's in See, prophets vision. not that earth has gotten bad, so we're going to get everybody out of earth and then it's just going to burn up and we'll be in heaven forever playing harps. Harps are a good. Point. There's one behind me. I don't want to play this forever in heaven. And most people don't either. Any either. Uh, instrument. I'm just picking on harps. Uh, heaven is not just disembodied bliss floating around in clouds. The Hebrew concept of heaven and the Christian concept of heaven was God is coming back, and just like the flood, he's going to wipe the slate of everything evil and disfiguring of creation and resurrect everything good that was there initially. And at the chief, top of that list, is people. Resurrection. See, heaven was never the final goal. Heaven's not the final destination. Heaven's the waiting room. The final destination is new earth. Resurrection. Recreation. Again, this pushes against some folk theology, but it's biblical theology 101, going all the way back to the Old Testament that every church father would have affirmed. Somehow we got the notion of the Gnostic idea where the earth is bad, spirit is good, so we got to get away. You know, I'll fly away. One day I'll fly away unto glory. You know, when I cross that river. All these hymns that we sing, just bad theology, um, of, of this, your, your your spirit, your soul is trapped in this body. We got to get rid of the body so it can be free. That's such a pagan, gnostic worldview. It's not a biblical worldview at all. The biblical worldview is soul and body together are a human being. That's a living human being. It's a soul and a body, a spirit and a body. And so when that, when the body dies, this person goes somewhere. The Old Testament just called it Sheol, the underworld, and they wait. Until the resurrection. The resurrection is what we're waiting on. That's why it's such a big deal when Jesus rose from the dead. Because he was like, hey, this is what's going to happen to everybody. I'm the first fruits. I'm going ahead to prepare the way that you're all going to experience this. That was the big deal about resurrection. Jesus just brought the final resurrection back in time in, in his own body. And so resurrection is the goal. New creation is the goal. Embodiedness is the goal. Hugging loved ones that you've lost is the goal. Eating, sharing meals together, doing physical stuff together. That's the goal. Not ethereal, heavenly hearts, clouds. You don't become an angel when you die. Other folk theology. Um, The goal was God is coming because he spent those six days, however you want to interpret them, creating a good creation. Why is he just going to burn it all away? No, he's going to restore it. And so when the Messiah comes and the prophets saw him, they saw him restoring the creation. They saw him putting right the things that had gone wrong, all the way down to the wild animals and the people and the entity between them. So at the end, Isaiah, uh, again, a vision of this new creation, and it flat out said, I I saw a new heavens and a new earth. So that's how we know he's talking about the new creation at the beginning of this chapter. And then down in 21, he says, They will build houses and dwell in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will be straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy all my holy mountain. So this vision of things being right again, being made whole, even down to the creation account to the animals. So, <coughs> next slide. So when Mark has Jesus in the wilderness, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. Angels attended it. three realms of creation going on. And so Baca makes this observation, whereas Satan is simply an enemy of Jesus and the angels simply his friends, the wild animals placed by Mark between those two are the enemies of whom Jesus makes friends. Jesus in the wilderness enacts in an anticipatory way the peace between the human world and wild nature that is Isaiah's activity and that's what Jesus is doing. He's coming to restore. Uh, he's coming to redeem. And he doesn't do it all at once. It's like a mustard seed. Right? It starts a little. It's like a little bit of yeast. It works its way through the dough. It's not all at once. Because he's doing it through us. He's doing it through his people. Spread around the world throughout time. But he's doing it. Everywhere that the kingdom of darkness is pushed back, Jesus is the one they're pushing back against it. But he's doing it through his people. That are being solved light, They're being illumination, there being preservation, that's what salt was for, is to preserve. Um, it was, you know, his his all of your mission, all of your mandate, everything you're doing, whether you're filling out a medical chart, whether you're drawing some kind of bodily fluid from something, I don't even know what it is, whatever you're doing covered in cow blood, I think somebody says, first thing I heard when I got here, hey, we're covered in cow blood today. Um, <laughs> weird, but, you know, I'm an Old Testament professor, so it's actually not that weird. <laughs> Leviticus and uh, but whatever you're doing, you're doing it in Jesus' name. You're pushing back darkness. When you're dealing with an animal, you're not just ministering to the family of that animal, although you are, and that's huge and super important. And I do not downplay that one bit. What I want you to add to that picture, while you're tending the animal to build a relationship with the family, is the animal has its own intrinsic value too. It has its own nefesh hayah, its own lifeblood, its own value that God created. So don't just see the animals you're working with as a means to an end. They, they, they are part of God's creation as well. And they are whom you have been entrusted carefully. The righteous person cares for the soul of his animal. So be that kind of person. Uh, Malcolm makes this observation. He says in the modern West, animal husbandry has largely been. By systematized brutality and exploitation, quite unlike good farming practice in the past, and in a different league of evil, even from bad farming practice in the past, it cannot possibly be justified by reference to the Bible. You know, Sometimes people say, "Well, God gives dominion over the animals." No, God gave us stewardship over the animals. If I hand Curtis the keys to my car and say, hey, "I'm going away to India for two weeks. Take care of my car for me," when I I'm not expecting him to take it and enter it into a demolition derby. I'm expecting to get it back. Preferably with as much gas as I left in it, in good working condition. Maybe there's a few miles on it. Okay. That's what God has done with humanity. That's dominion. That's stewardship. Not just exploitation. That's all gonna burn anyway, so we don't might as well, who cares? Not at all. They're all his. The cattle on a thousand hill belong to the Lord. So treat them like that. Somehow, again, folk theology is rampant. It'll creep in and it'll distort and it'll get people away from the biblical message. But he goes on to say, crucially, the Bible does not regard domestic animals as mere objects for people to use, but like wild animals as subjects of their own lives. So we'll end. What's our biblical mandate? Your biblical mandate, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and this is all completely nonsense, and I get it, <laughs> you don't have to agree with any of it. But if you are a follower of Jesus, this is your doctrine This is what the Bible teaches if you claim to believe in the Bible. This is what you need to wrestle with and grapple with. Your biblical mandate, Messiah Jesus, inaugurated in part what all creation longs for one day in whole. Romans 8 talks about this. All of creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be fully revealed. It's where everything is headed. So in the meantime, in the now, in the end times where we are, We're called to live out this eschatological ideal. Eschatology just means end times. We're called to live out this end times ideal as much as we're able, being salt and light in the world as peacemaker stewards of the King of Kings who's coming back to restore all things. We're going to have to hand over everything to God one day that that we've done, everything. All our gifts, our talents, creation, everything. We're going to have to hand it back and say, here's what we did. So that's how we should be living now. So your, your view of the end informs your view of the now. What you think about the end times informs how you live now, including how you, how you vote, how you recycle or don't recycle, how you care for, care for animals or don't care for animals, how you support this politician or that politician or whatever. Um, all of that is, is conditioned by where do we think everything's headed? What is God doing? Did he just hand us the keys and say, go wild? Or did He hand us His keys and say, take care of it for me?